Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Congratulations to Ronnie O'Sullivan, who has won the World Championship, I'm sure everybody knows, for a sixth time. Remarkable scenes. Final was a little one-sided, which was, I guess, a shame in terms of spectacle, but still a great story, a great achievement. And I'm here with Michael McMullen to... uh, Go over it all and uh, see what we think about the championship, see what we think about where this leaves Ronnie, and uh, maybe just look ahead to the future as well. Um, here's, a, here's a question straight away for you, okay? Yeah. Out of 10, what would you give the world championship? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I suppose, I mean, at least seven. At least seven and maybe a bit more than that, maybe eight. I mean, I was thinking about this and, you know, where you would rank it. It's like you even think back to probably the least memorable world championships we've seen. Say 93, for example. That was mm. definitely one of the least memorable championships. And you might say 95 as well, <laughs> one or two others. But, it, I mean, it's still a fantastic two weeks. It's still two of the best weeks of your year. So there's no such thing as a bad world championship. But some are better than others. I think this was definitely one of those. Um, and, I mean, you look, there were very, very few runaways. Now, that's been more of a trend in recent years, actually. You see very few really one-sided matches. Now, of course, the champion started and ended his campaign in that way, but we didn't have many of them, actually, and we had some very good finishes, great stories, two unbelievable semi-finals. I mean, people are saying that Friday was the best day of snooker at the Crucible ever. That's a matter for debate, but it, it is actually, I think, a viable thing to say. It was um, immense stuff on, on Friday. Bit of a shame the final, of course, let us down, because as you said, actually, on a recent podcast, people tend, when they're looking back at world championships, to judge them on the final. And this was probably you know, one of the most forgettable finals we've seen uh, in the end, although at one stage it was shaping up better. But uh, let's say... Let's say seven and five eighths. <laughs> what about you? Well, I'm giving it eight and a half, and uh, yeah. the, the, it, it would have been a nine if the final had been close. The final as a spectacle wasn't great. I mean, the first day was. The first day, the standard was low, but it was close. Um, I thought I thought yesterday afternoon was like a sort of balloon deflating. You know, it was just Kyron could not really get involved, and Ronnie, once he got 
four or five in front. I couldn't see him losing. Um, but I think I marked it up um, for a couple of reasons. One, because it was on. You know, the fact that we actually had the world had the world championship. The fact that it worked. All those people who spent their time in the summer saying. It, it shouldn't be on, it couldn't be on, it wasn't safe, you know, it shouldn't happen. All wrong, all proved wrong. It was a great success and, you know, all credit to everyone involved in getting it on. There's a lot of work going on, as we know. Um, but the fact is, the snooker was great. I mean, the very first frame that I did on the first morning, it was nearly a maximum. Tom Ford uh, yeah. broke down a 97 and there was a kind of sign there that actually it was going to be good. The fact that there were no crowds for, you know, the vast majority of it didn't detract from the pressure that players are under. We saw that, obviously, as you said, on the, the last day of the semifinals. Um, some great snooker played, some great stories. We're going to go through them all. It actually started, I guess, with a withdrawal. Anthony Hamilton, it seems a long time ago now that he... Uh, withdrew just before the event began. Um, the thing about this is, okay, people said he never intended to play. I don't believe that for a minute because I... No, neither I, do I, no. Well, me and uh, Neil uh, Folds and a couple of others, we had a drink with Anthony, Alan McManus, and I think Mathlin was there. People who qualified, basically just after they qualified. And he was looking forward to going there to play. There was no question that he wasn't going to play. I think the, the thing was, they, they were sent all the information, the players, before the qualifiers about how it would work at the Crucible, but... I guess he just didn't read it because he's, you know, he doesn't know he's going to qualify and he's just concentrating on playing in the qualifiers. Um, he has asthma. He also, I think I've mentioned this before, he has a friend who's younger than him in his 30s who had the virus, who had coronavirus, was very ill with it and he's still struggling now. So he's seen it close up and he just felt it wasn't a risk worth taking. I, I personally, it's, it's disappointing, I think, that he pulled out, but you, I don't personally think you can criticise him. That's a, that's a decision he's taken. The irony being, of course, after day one, the crowds were sent home. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, he, he must be gutted. I mean, you could say, oh, he probably regrets it now, but of course he would have had to play on the first day anyway, wouldn't he? Yeah. When yeah. there was a crowd. And also, you know, you can't regret something when you've made a decision based on the information at a particular time and then the information changes. And also people saying he entered the qualifying and never intended to play that, which I don't believe either. But, you know, when he started the qualifying, playing at the Crucible with the crowd there was a concept. Now, once he'd won his qualifying matches, it was mm. a reality. And you do tend to think of things differently when they're actually an immediate reality. And I can completely understand why he did what he did. What, what, what a shame, though. I mean, 12 years he's waited to get back there. There must have been a lot of times during those 12 years when, at his age, he probably thought, I'm unlikely to have to play at the Crucible again, to get back there and then not get to play. And it may very, very well be the last chance he gets to play at the Crucible, a place where he's you know, done very well in the past. So it was, it was a very unfortunate situation for him, but it worked out very well for Kyron Wilson. People talk about the 17-day endurance test. Well, for Kyron, it ended up being, what was it, like a nine-day thing? He almost ended up, actually, being through to the quarterfinals on the day he hit his first ball of the championship. Uh, which would have been quite something. But, yeah, an unfortunate situation, Frank. We should go back to our predictions that we made um, yeah. pre-tournament. And, uh, you know, we did pretty well. I got 12 out of 16, and I think you got 14. Brilliant, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but, it was but, a throwback to the old days, wasn't it, when, you know, yeah. you used to be able to predict most of the first round and get most of them right. But, yeah, I was pleased with that. But, of course, one of the two I got wrong was, was your very big call. Yeah, Jamie Clark. Well, that was the thing. And Mark Allen, you tipped to win the title. Um, yeah, that worked out well. Well, I just felt with that, I think I said at the time, you know, there's always one that you sort of can't see coming and he does follow in the tradition of Welsh players who go there and just beat people. Mm. Um, but let's go back to that match because right at the start of it, Jamie Clark, you know, is the lowest ranked player there. He has every right to be a bag of nerves. It's the biggest day of his life as a snooker player. 
Mark Allen seemed to go out of his way to help him settle down. He was laughing and joking with him. He was sort of putting him at ease, actually, in a way that you would never have got from a Hendry, a Davis, even an O'Sullivan, actually, wouldn't have done that. Um, now, it's easy to say now that, oh, well, that backfired. You know, we don't know if it made any difference at all. But some of the commentators, certainly, some of the old the old sweats who played there, you know, the Parrots, the Davises, they couldn't quite understand it. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I mean, it must have done him some damage because it's a match he should have won easily. He played so well. And his performance in that match, actually, Alan, typified for me a lot of what went on in the championship. And even with O'Sullivan, as we'll discuss, you look at the, the match sheet and it looks like Alan has played out of his skin. And for a number of frames, he did with all those big breaks he made. But he also punctuated it with an incredible amount of really basic errors. And for me, that was actually a feature of the championship. And I think it's because we're so used to seeing these guys going to the Crucible absolutely <laughs> sharp, match tight, having played tournament after tournament all through the winter. Obviously, it was different this time. And I think it showed there were just a few rusty edges, shall we say, to the performances of a lot of players. And Mark Allen fell victim to that as much as anyone. He, he must regret, I mean, the, the way he handled that match at the start, because I completely agree with what was said. It's not a criticism. You know, he can go out and conduct himself whatever way he wants in the arena, so long as it's within, you know, the rules and all the rest of it, which it certainly was. But this was a really good chance for him, you know, because he was going in, he'd just been in a final, number four in the world, the highest he'd ever been. Um, as it turned out, with other results, he could have got to the final without beating anyone ranked higher than him. And it was a massive opportunity missed in a very, very big way for him. And he's not getting any younger now. I think he's 34 now, Mark. And you would have to say time is perhaps running out for him. Um, because you, you don't generally see players much beyond that age winning it for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, one match that went very close was Anthony McGill. Uh, Jack Lazowski came right down to the last couple of balls. I think that's, again, proof of the, the sort of power of snooker. They would not be the two biggest names in the event by any means. You know, that's not a match that necessarily you would be sort of rushing home to watch. But the, the game itself is so compelling. And, and you know, the, the, the fact that it came down, Anthony potted that great blue. Um, and of course, without, you know, without, again, wishing to blow one's own trumpet. Here we I go. Did, I did, but having said that, I'll, I'll rephrase that. I am going to blow my own trumpet. I yeah. did tip him. I did tip him to get to the semis, and, I, and the reason is I do think he has that absolute sort of crucible mindset. He has the ability to just focus on what he's doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a little bet with myself how many minutes it was going to take. <laughs> mentioned the deal. I didn't think would get. In fact, it took you about as long as it took to play the final frame uh, in, yes. in, in the last session last night. But yeah, an amazing call and. I was thinking that, actually. It was a double whammy when Mark Allen got knocked out because I was thinking, OK, I've got one of my first-round predictions wrong. I've also got one of my four semi-finals that we picked wrong. I've obviously got the winner wrong. And what's worse now is that with Allen being out, there's a great chance of you getting your McGill to reach the semi-final pick uh, coming up. But, yeah, I agree with what you're saying about McGill. And, I mean, he's shown that crucible mentality a number of times in the past. Obviously beating Selby, getting to the quarterfinals. He's beaten Murphy there as well. And uh, he was to become ultimately one of the stories of the championship. He has the ability, I think, to get over playing badly. And he got he went missing a few times in sessions. You know, he, he seemed to struggle being a front runner. Um, he was seven-one up to Mathlin in the quarterfinals, and seemed to go apart in the next session. Just felt the pressure. Six-two up in the semis to Car and same thing. But he comes good again and. Ironically, he probably played his best snooker in the last session of the semi-final that he lost. I mean, we'll come on to that late. We'll come on to yeah. the semi-finals finals later. Um, let's uh, go into the second round. Um, the, the John Higgins maximum was a great uh, a moment. Myself and Neil uh, were very fortunate to be able to commentate on it live. Um, and even again, there was no crowd, but it's still, you know, it's a crucible maximum. You think of all the frames that have been played there, thousands of frames. It's only the 11th. 
And like Jimmy White was saying, and, and he's right, you know, it's probably the only thing John really hasn't done in the game is make a maximum there, and, and now he's done it. Last of the class of 92 to uh, to take yeah. that one off, of course, because Ronnie did it in 97 and Mark Williams did it back in 2005. So, yeah, I mean, John Higgins, you, you consider his status in the in the modern game, you know, it, he should have a crucible maximum on his uh, CV. And, you know, a bit of a shame from, of course, there wasn't a crowd there, uh, you know, for his, his, his great moment there that he'll remember forever. But an amazing uh, fact that, you know, was trotted out at the time, John had never made one even in practice mm. before he made one in competition. But he certainly uh, put, put it right over the years. I, I wasn't surprised, actually, he lost the match. I fancied Mafflin on the basis of how he'd played in the first round that he might get through. And, you know, I mean, John has done incredibly well the last few years to struggle through the season. It seems he it's an annual thing now, around about Christmas, he talks about retirement. And then he goes to the Crucible, finds his game and battles through a few rounds and gets to the final. You can't really keep repeating that trick year after year. And uh, this was the year that, that it caught up with him. And you look at John now and you wonder, has he really got it in him to win another world title? You wouldn't write him off because I mean, we wrote him off three years in a row and he almost won it in, well, two of those and got to the final the other year. But uh, perhaps, that's, uh, perhaps that prospect of a fifth one is maybe passing him by a little bit now. Although, of course, he'll have that extra motivation as if he needs it uh, for the fact that his great rival O'Sullivan has now gone two ahead of him. It was a great match. I, th- I think, if I'm right in saying, I commentated on the whole match with Higgins Mathlin, and it was one of the best matches of the tournament. Um, and Ma- and Mathlin, it's an interesting story because he's not Jamie Clark. He's not starting out in his career. He's been he's been slogging at it for a while, Kurt Mathlin, uh, in his thirties. Had had a few good moments here and there, but this was a chance to shine on a really big stage, and he did. He did so. He was. He led all the way, went 11-10 down. You think the script says Higgins is going to win now with all his experience. Actually, Mathlin played superbly mm. at, the end of, at the end of that match. And I guess the big disappointment for him is then he didn't show up in the first session against McGill. And my theory actually is it's opposite to what you might think. A lot of people think that you have an advantage if you finish your second round match you know, early and you have a few days off. And, and McGill actually uh, finished his match against Jamie Clark. We know that went very late, sort of midnight. Mm. We straight back on the next afternoon. But my theory is that actually that was an advantage to McGill because he didn't have time to think about even being in the quarterfinal. He just had to come out and play. Mathlin would have had messages from people at home wishing him well. Maybe too much build-up, actually, to playing what would have been the biggest match he ever played. And in the first session, maybe that told. Yeah, I agree with you on all of that. And, you know, we, we mentioned this in the preview. We talked about Mathlin and the fact that, I mean, even as far back as the 1990s, when he would only have been maybe 12 or 13, he was being talked about as this amazing prospect, Kurt the Kid Mathlin. He was known as, and it just never really happened for him at all at, at that level. I wonder, now, look, he's obviously he's entitled to make his own decisions for his personal life, but I wonder living in Norway, you know, can you really compete effectively at that level, uh, you know, when you don't have other players there to practice with uh, on a regular basis? I don't know, maybe he has been spending more time uh, in the UK practicing with other players, but it, it is surprising that, I mean, his talent is obvious and we saw it at the Crucible and we saw it even a few years ago when he almost knocked out Mark Selby in the first round. But uh, it, it is surprising looking back that he hasn't accomplished a lot more in the game, given how much talk there was about him long before he'd even turned pro. But this was the highlight of his career, uh, no question about it, to be in a world quarter final. And in the end, he wasn't that far away from taking it further. No, and he played well, as I say, in, in his first two matches and, and did start to play much better. It was a little too late against McGill. Speaking of McGill, of course, the big big flashpoint uh, of the tournament was his match with Jamie Clark, um, where Jan Bahas had to sort of get between them a little bit. There was uh, McGill was complaining essentially that Clark was in his eye line. Um, 
this is what I mean. Everyone got very excited about this. This is this is what sort of stands for controversy these days. My feeling about it is that it is a very tight arena, and there are certain protocols that are different there than at other tournaments. Just because it, you know there's there's no room around the table. Although as, as Neil Fold said, you know it's no, it's no bigger or smaller than it ever has been before. Mm. Um, there is etiquette and. I feel that when you're behind in the match, and it was 8-2 at the time, you notice everything, basically. I think if Anthony had been 8-2 up, he might have even just blanked it out of his mind. But clearly, he was um, feeling a bit... I think the general view... I've spoken to other players about this, and the general view is that he may have had a legitimate complaint, but possibly could have handled it differently in terms of maybe he could have gone privately to the Yambas, the referee, and said, between frames, and said, look, this is happening, can you deal with it? To go up to the player... Um, maybe it's not the way to do it. However, you know, it's one of those things. It it, 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 it was a great match in the end. It was people. It will be remembered for the for the thrilling finish. The standard wasn't particularly high, but the actual excitement they generated. And in the end, the two of them went to the dressing room and hugged. It's not non-social distancing, by the way. But anyway, we'll we'll let them off for that. Um, just one of those things, I think. I don't think Jamie Clark necessarily helped by sort of tweeting the stuff he did. Although that was kind of good fun in a way as well, maybe. Yeah, it was like that incident was a bit like one of those plays you see that's uh, loads of small bits of other plays. Because mm. the incident, it was like putting together the uh, Alex Higgins incident with uh, John Williams, wasn't it, back in 94? Mm. And then uh, obviously the Quinton Hahn, Andy Hicks thing with, um, who was it? It was Jan, wasn't it, this time? Was the ref? Uh, yeah, it was this Laurie Annandale then. Yeah, Jan yeah. now, yeah. yeah. He was in the sort of Laurie Annandale role this time. Mm. So it was, it was kind of a combination of those two things. I agree with you. Don't get on Twitter. Well, I mean, that should be a general rule in life anyway. But, you know, it, it, it wasn't a good time to do it. You can look at it and say the position he was in at the time and the way the match turned around after that. You know, it's not hard to draw the conclusion that the incident really did affect him badly. You know, you wouldn't suggest that that was why McGill did it, to try to put him off or anything like that. But, you know, it, it certainly can't help. But then they both seem to raise their game a bit more, actually, um, mm. after that, you know, coming towards the finish. And it's funny, you know, you look at the rankings of the players involved, you could argue it was perhaps the lowest profile match of the whole championship. But with the possible exception of the two semi-finals, it's ended up being the most talked about. And as for Jamie Clark, I mean, the, the regrets he's going to have about missing the chance to mm. win it towards the finish. I mean, that's the sort of thing you have nightmares about. You see players go to the Crucible, Dave, and, and doing well there, you know, stepping out of the shadows, having a great run. And you think, OK, he's shown what he can do. Surely now he's going to go off and do well in loads of other tournaments. But very, very often it doesn't happen that way. And they slip back into the, into the shadows again. Definitely. And, and you're right when you say, regardless of the rights and wrongs of that incident, the fact is he had the match in the palm of his hands. He needed two balls, I think, a pink and a red to win, and he missed the pink. So he had the chance to win. You can't say he lost because of what happened in you know in that in that middle session. Obviously, it may have turned that session, but he had the chance to win. And like you say, it'd be interesting. Now he had a great tournament, a lot a lot more money than he's ever earned before. Um, yeah. And he's a nice guy, Jamie. I hope he comes back next season and does well. He's great. He's still on the tour. We'll be looking out for his results, and hopefully, you know, this will be he's got a taste of it, and he will push on from there. Um, Let's move on. Well, of course, there's no such thing as you, as you have established as the Crucible curse, but yeah. but Joe Trump still fell victim to the, the non-curse. Yeah. <laughs> or, or you could just say he was up against a really, really good player who produced a very, very good performance. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I know I sent you on WhatsApp, one of the very few social media things mm. I'm doing, and I sent you a picture of the the the, uh, the Scooby-Doo lineup at the end of it. Re regular <laughs> listeners will understand why. Others will be completely baffled as to why on earth I'd do that. I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, look, we see it so often, defending champions going out, second round, quarterfinals, whatever. 
this was another case of it. Judd isn't going to look back and say he played badly because he didn't. He didn't play as well as he did last year, but he didn't uh, you know, let himself down in that quarterfinal by any means. I thought Wilson handled the situation very, very well. But Trump is going to be absolutely sick, isn't he? Because if the championship had gone ahead at the normal time, the rhythm he was in and the momentum he had behind him, you know, of course, he might not have won it, but he would have been much better positioned because he hasn't really reproduced that form in any of the tournaments he's played since the action resumed. And uh, I guess the consolation is we won't have to listen to the Curse of the Crucible talk next year because we didn't end up getting a new champion. But I remember when last year's championship ended, we were talking about how, you know, Sullivan is really going to be troubled by this. There's a new crowd favourite who's come along playing O'Sullivan's type of snooker and has won the world championship and is now looking like the best player in the world. Now, of course, 12 months on, it's all flipped completely because, you know, OK, Trump is still number one, but he'd much rather have the world title. There's no question about that. And now it's going to be equally fascinating to see how he'll respond to losing that title. Yeah, we're going to come to that later, actually, Trump versus Sullivan now in the future. I think the thing is, we'll, we'll obviously we'll never know whether he would have won it in, in you know, when, if it had been played in April. Certainly he was playing the best snooker by far of anyone at that point but he still had the pressure of going there. He, he, his edge was blunted, I think, by having to stop playing. It's a pretty sim- simple thing, really. Um, and I never felt at any point that he was playing as well as last year, although last year he did sort of improve as the event went on. But yeah, Kyron, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a very tough player to beat. And I think Trump actually spoke well afterwards. He said, you know, I think he could go on and win it. He's playing well enough. Um, I thought he handled his year as world champion very well indeed. Brilliantly, um, yeah. And you know, I'm, I, I think he, I'm, I think he's likely to come good again there at the future. But uh, the curse or non-curse uh, has got him. Maybe Steve Davis was involved because uh, if you if you yeah. did hear if you did hear Neil's email about the the, the Scooby Doo episode, Steve was uh, very much involved in all of that. Um, one of the matches I seem to comment out on a lot of was Mark Selby against Neil Robertson uh, at the quarterfinal and. The tone of this was set in the first frame. It was a 59-minute grind that Mark Selby won. And you just think, yeah, he's got him already. I honestly thought that. After frame yeah. one, I thought, I thought he's, you played right into his hands again. Um, and, yeah, and, and Mark Selby just controlled the match and won pretty comfortably. Even though it was hard fought, it was actually a comfortable win. Neil, as we know, has a very analytical mind. And he needs to use it now because he needs to look at this. He's gone to the Crucible the last two years, looking like one of the favourites to win the title for a second time, got to the quarterfinals both times, and ended up losing in very similar circumstances, actually, because the way Selby beat him was quite similar. Now, last year was a much, much closer match, but still, it was much the same way that John Higgins had knocked him out at the same stage last year. And listen, Neil, Neil can certainly you know, mix it in the tactical exchanges and all the rest of it, but Selby seemed to control the tempo of the match, control the way it was played, and from 5-0 down, I mean, what chance have you got really against Mark Selby? Yes, he did get back to within a couple of frames but really, Selby looked pretty comfortable. Uh, in fact, the only time in the match that Selby didn't look comfortable was when he had this extraordinary bout of what Clive calls clincher's disease towards the end. Now, you would expect that to be something that would happen to an inexperienced player who was only a couple of frames in front. You're talking about one of the greatest players there's ever been who had a massive lead, but he just seemed completely unable to get over the line. Really, Robertson should have got, got it back to 12-8 uh, and at least given uh, Mark something to think about. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a strange end from that point of view. But Robertson needs to go away and think about this now. When he goes back to the Crucible next year, it'll be eleven years since he won it. Nobody has ever had such a long gap after winning it for the first time and then gone on and won it again. So we'll, we'll see what the future is for that. Yeah, I think I think his average shot time in the end was like thirty seconds. You know, and and 
it's not his game at all. And I think we'd all love to see Neil Robertson win it again. It'd be great. But yeah. like you say, uh, if he comes up against another sort of tactical player next year, then it's how he approaches it and how he plays it. Because uh, as I say, that first frame to me just seemed to set the tone. Um, Mark Selby, of course, uh, was my tip to win it. He didn't win it. So so that didn't work. But I think he did prove throughout the tournament that, you know, at the Crucible, he is, you know, the right sort of player for that venue. And, and in the end, you know, very, very nearly got to the final again. Yeah, and he would have been gutted watching that final, seeing the way Kyron didn't really turn up, apart from, you know, a brief spell maybe in the second session. Over the four sessions, that format that Selby really seems to have mastered so much would have been a fantastic chance for him to win his fourth world title. You you have to think he would have been a massive favourite to win that one. But how has he not won that semi-final? I mean, (laughs) he, he must be looking at that thinking, there was a point on the Friday morning, so that would have been the third session, where you thought, Selby's got this one now, and he just has to see it through. But yeah. really, really strangely, he couldn't kill it off. And normally when he gets in front and gets the chance to, to, to see it off, he's a really, really strong finisher of matches. Seemed to struggle to finish it off, as I said, with the big lead against Robertson, but just couldn't get the job done and ended up, as so often happens when you play O'Sullivan, if you don't put him away when you've got the mm-hmm. chance, he'll come back and get you in the last session. And what an amazing last session it turned out to be. Well, it was 13-9, and in the next frame, the penultimate frame of that third session, Ronnie O'Sullivan could not pot a ball. He had gone, yeah. basically. He'd gone, but he, he he stood deep mentally, and he won the frame somehow, and then he won the last frame. So Selby's already going back to the hotel thinking, this should be at least 14-10, possibly 15-9. In fact, there's only two in it. And then we saw what happened in the evening. There were a few unconventional shot choices from O'Sullivan that, that didn't impress Selby. He said they were disrespectful. But to me, you play whatever shot you want. You know, we talk about, we've talked a lot about Selby getting under O'Sullivan's skin. Well, actually, the opposite happened here. Ronnie got under his. And Mark Selby knows that psychology is a big part of the crucible. He didn't handle it as well as Ronnie did in the end. Yeah, I, I think O'Sullivan got it right. He got a lot of criticism, which I didn't actually agree with. And no. I think it's like a lot of things with Ronnie both on and off the table. Sometimes he has the basic point right, but maybe he takes it a little too far in some people's eyes. And I think that was actually the same with some of the comments he made about some of the players lower down the rankings. But, you know, we, we've all seen the matches over the years. We think particular that 2014 final and how that's affected him at the Crucible since. This was his first chance to actually directly shake that off by beating Selby at the Crucible. Again, it was a four-session match. And if he felt the way to do that was to not let Selby dictate the tempo the way Robertson had in the previous round, then I say good luck to him and fair play. And yes, he bashed at a few shots, but you know, the old hit and hope, sometimes that's got as much chance of working as playing a delicate roll-up off a cushion or two. So I didn't think he did anything wrong at all. You might say once or twice he cost himself by going a little too far. But in the course of a four-session match, if you're employing a game plan and an overall strategy and you end up winning the match, you're beyond any question. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't agree that he showed Selby disrespect. Although, frankly, if he did, so what anyway? He's there, he's, there, he's there to win the match, and he did win the match. And it was, it felt to me like the final, really, uh, that match because it exercised the demons of 2014. Yeah, it would have meant it would have meant a lot to beat Selby. It's interesting after the final when he did the interview with Rob Walker, he said pointedly, I thought that. When he got to four world titles, he thought he was a great. He said anything less than that, you're not a great. Although yeah. Mark Williams, although Mark Williams is, yeah, was yeah. that was that was that a little dig at Selby maybe? Because Selby's won it three times. I don't know, but clearly yeah. beating beating Selby was a big big deal for him. It must have felt like almost winning the tournament. I know he's obviously got to play another four sessions. It was a big result and a deserved winner. And I think obviously, look, we'll cut Mark some slack. He had to be interviewed literally minutes after he got beat 
after a, after a three-day, four-session match where he must have felt he had a great chance to be world champion again. So, look, people say things when they're disappointed. But, you know, he, as I say, has got under Ronnie's skin many times. And, and it, the, the fact is, this time, the opposite happened. But let's talk about the semi-finals because the last day was an extraordinary day of snooker by any standards. Oh, yeah. Um, the, that first semi-final, firstly, the standard. I mean, that was supposed to be the undercard, actually, Wilson-McGill, in a way, wasn't it, for, for O'Sullivan Selby? It was a fantastic match. The last frame was, I mean, you could write a book about it. It was just crazy stuff, but compelling and proof again that it doesn't matter whether it's a high standard, it's snooker, if it's close and tense, is just brilliant viewing. Well, we do a, a podcast just about that final frame. <laughs> you know, we, 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 could, we could fill a couple of hours with it. It's funny, right at the end of that frame, I was thinking back to, you know what? None of this would have happened if McGill had got a slightly nicer split on the Reds what felt like about a week ago at that stage, yeah. because it just seemed like something from a different era uh, towards the end. We don't need to go into all the details because look, it would take so long, and I'm sure everyone has seen it anyway. But yes, absolutely. It, it's hard actually to describe that frame and the climax to it without just falling into cliche, because you can say it was you know amazing, unprecedented, you know whatever you want to, to say about it. it. It really is one of those occasions where you can't find the words. But again, McGill is going to be so gutted because he had the chance. He'd been thrown a lifeline. He didn't mess up, you wouldn't say, but he had a brilliant chance to win it. And he really should have finished it off. And uh, it just wasn't to be. And I mean, incredible that it finished with a fluke and, you know, Kyron Wilson's tears. I was thinking back to 12 months ago, another semi-final uh, that finished 17-16. That time it was a player trying to get to the final for the first time getting beaten, and he was in tears after the match. This time it was the winner in floods of tears. That's what those big matches can uh, can really do to you. And I think we saw the knock-on effect of that the next day. Both players were spent, really. It seemed very tired. Um, you know, it, I said it felt must have felt like Ronnie to a final. Well, I think for Karen, similar. And the fact that he was in floods of tears before he'd been asked a question, and he'd won the match as well, yeah, tells, yeah. tells you that how, how much emotionally it had taken out of him. And then he's got to get himself up for... Biggest matches ever played. The first day of the final, the first, first session was a little flat. The evening, I thought, was interesting. Last frame, of course, um, was a big one. There were, there, were, there were a couple of big frames, a couple of key misses. But it seemed to me that Karen Wilson, the one criticism that commentators make, players make of him, is that his positional play, cubal control, maybe isn't as pinpoint as some other players. And I think sure. that, cert that certainly cost him in the final because he was leaving himself pressure balls and you could tell by the way he was approaching playing them, he knew they were pressure balls. And, you know, if, if pressure's going to come to bear in any match, it's going to be the world final. And, you know, he, he just missed a few of those. That's all it was. And then, you know, Ronnie got on top of him and, and ran away with it, I guess. Yeah. Um, you've pretty much summed it all up there. The, the one thing I would, I would say to that, you think back to the first time Kyron was in the semi-finals, and it took him a while to settle against John Higgins, and both players said at the end of the match that that was what had really been the decisive factor, that Kyron hadn't settled quickly enough and had allowed John to build a bit of a lead. I felt there was a bit of that again. I thought Wilson looked very edgy early on, and, you know, he'll know that he... You know, Sullivan hasn't exactly gone out there and played his best by any means. I mean, he was far, far from it. And again, you know, you look at O'Sullivan's performances throughout the championship. If you look at the match sheets, it looks like he's played brilliantly from start to finish. But of course, if you actually watch the matches, he was punctuating all those big breaks with a lot of mistakes. We'd seen it in the semi-final. We saw it again in the final. The high point, obviously, was Saturday night. And, you know, I was thinking back to 85, Davis and Taylor. And again, it, it was a Saturday and Sunday final, which is an unusual thing. 
But Taylor on that uh, Saturday night came from well, well behind to close to only 9-7 down overnight. Wilson looked like he was going to do something similar at one stage. It looked as though he might even find himself in the lead overnight because from 8-2 down, it wouldn't have taken much, actually, to go differently for him to have been 9-8 in front. So it was looking quite thrilling at that stage, but it, the, the end of it reminded me a bit of the final in 2013 when Ronnie won a close last frame to go 10-7 up overnight against Barry Hawkins um, when it looked as though it was going to be 9-8. I mean, the difference, again, we've fallen into cliche here, but the difference between those two situations in terms of being one behind or three behind, particularly when you're so much the underdog, is absolutely massive. And, OK, I know Karen won the first frame the next day, but I wonder, had he kept that momentum going and got it back to 9-8, might it have been different the next day? Maybe not, actually, in light of what we saw, but it would have been interesting to find out. Definitely. The, the one bit of good news for Wilson is there's been examples of players who've reached a world final and then come back and won it. You think of... Dennis Taylor, you think of John Parrott, who was absolutely drugged by Davis in 89-18-3, won it in 91. You think of Mark Williams, got to a final and then won it the year later. So, Judge I, I just, as well, of course. Yeah. Of course, Judge, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and uh, Graham Dart as well. So Yeah, so it's happened. And the, and the point is, I think everyone sees Kyron as a player who, you know, is suited to the Crucible. He had a great championship. He'll be disappointed with these performance on the last day uh, and in the final in general. But, you know, a lot to... To build on, but let's talk about the champion, uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think over the championship, I think he's played better to win the world championship. I'll be honest. Um, yeah. But he, I think there's a number of factors here um, that saw him, you know, get the trophy. The first is I think his mental attitude going there, in terms of he knew there would be a, a sort of worst, if you like, a reduced crowd. He has spoken. He spoke about it before the championship, and he spoke about it last night as well about the fact that when he goes there, he feels like he's in a goldfish bowl. Um, not just, you know, the media, but fans around Sheffield. Like, it's a, it's a snooker bubble. He's the biggest star in the game, and he feels under the microscope. And, you know, he actually found it easier knowing he, he could go there and not have that attention on him. Attention when he's playing, yeah, but not when he's actually around the Crucible, around Sheffield. So I think he was mentally prepared, and that's so important for him particularly, for any player, but for him particularly. Um, and we saw that in moments. You know, he was 6-2 down to Mark Williams. He, there were moments, there were moments, and against Ding it was close, there were moments where you thought, actually, will he crack? Will he stand up to it? And he did. And obviously the most you know, significant point in the championship was the, was the semi-final against Mark Selby the last session. Um, so he showed great mental fortitude, even if he didn't necessarily, apart from the first round, which was an exhibition, he didn't necessarily play the, the 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 A game all the way through. He he battled, and that's that's impressive. I think there were four matches there. You could say were exactly the sort of matches that he's been losing at the Crucible in recent years. You know, when he's put under a bit of pressure by another top player, he has cracked under it. Certainly cracked against Bingham the year Bingham went on to win it. Massively cracked against Carter in two thousand and eighteen, and cracked from the start against James Cahill last year because there was so much pressure on him from the first ball. Perhaps a lot of it self-inflicted. But this time he came through all of those matches and, you know, it was a completely different scenario. In terms of where it leaves him now, I believe what the young people would say is hashtag game changer. Because <laughs> it's amazing the difference one title can make. Think back to the start of last year's championship. It was going to be the last world championship of Judd Trump's 20s. Now, as we were saying, not many players win it for the first time, much past the age of 30. So we were thinking maybe time's running out for him a little bit. Then he goes there and wins it once. And when we were doing this podcast last year, we were saying, oh, he probably want to win it three or four times now. Likewise with O'Sullivan, because the longer he stayed stuck on five, 
the more we thought seven just seems so, so far away in terms of chasing Henry's record. Now, all of a sudden, on the back of winning one tournament, where, as you say, he hasn't played anything like his best, he's in a situation where, all being well, he'll be going back to the Crucible in only eight months' time with a chance to draw level with Henry. And if you consider he's still winning the championship now at the age of 44, you know, why would he not still be a contender for the championship when he's 50? Why would he not still be a contender when he's a couple of years into his 50s? So he's got many, many chances now. He only needs one more to equal the record, two to beat it. I didn't think he was going to win another one, if I'm being honest. Now I think it's at worst 50-50 and probably a bit better than that, that he's probably going to end up beating the record in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard the day after seeing him win it to properly sort of think about it logically. You feel, I agree with you at the moment, I agree with you, you he could win it nine times as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But but we don't know how, what shape he's going to be in next year. If the crowds come back, maybe it's, it's different. We just don't know what, what's going to happen next year. But certainly... You know, the, like I say, the Selby victory that put to bed the defeat that changed his whole Crucible career, it's now swung back again. It's swung back into Ronnie O'Sullivan being a justified favourite or one or two, you know, top in the betting to win the title. He's going to go there in that number one seed position next year, um, definitely with a chance to, to level up. And, yeah, unbelievable, really. I mean, 19 years span between winning it first time and last. I think that's uh, only Joe Davis yeah. in, the, in the game can boast that. And, of course, that's right at the start of professional snooker. 1927 to 1946. Um, remarkable, really. And But like I say, what I think the most remarkable thing is that he had made a very clear decision, I think, that he was going to dig in. Everyone said that, I mean, Colin Murray, uh, Eurosport, interviewed him a lot, and he said he was absolutely fine to deal with. Sometimes he can be difficult. He was absolutely fine. He just approached the championship in a very professional way um, and got the result. And, uh, you know, at the end, he conducted himself well. It was just a great triumph for Ronnie as a player and as a person. And now he's given himself this springboard um, to, you know, he didn't say he was going to retire and there's none of that. He's given himself this springboard to start really racking them up in the future years. Let's go back though to what he said, because it ties into what you said about how long he can go, he can go on. He, made, he did this interview, the, probably the most notorious interview of the championship, where he talked about the lack of young talent. He'd have to he'd lose an arm and a leg to drop out of the top 50. A very blunt sort of brutal way of putting it. But when you think about it, how, how could he drop out of the top 50 unless suddenly his game literally just went overnight? He probably He's going to decline because everyone does, but it's going to be gradual, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, with regard to that, it's like I was saying about the shot selections earlier. Sometimes, you know, Ronnie comes out with some crazy stuff, but actually a lot of the time, you know, what actually happens is he's just gone a little too far. And when you look at his basic message, he has a point, and he definitely has a point because... You know, the, the players who have come through, I think talking about players lower down the rankings, I think he was he was wrong about that because I think the strength of depth is much better now than it was when he and Mark Williams were first playing each other and coming out onto the tour, which was the context in which it was asked. But in terms of players coming through to challenge the very best, he is right. The, the, the quality hasn't been there in terms of what's coming through. OK, there have been a few exceptions, Judd Trump being the most obvious one. But you've got to remember the question he was asked was, would you have thought when you first played Mark Williams all those years ago, you'd still be in this position now? And he would, would you know, the, the point he made, I think, had a lot of validity to it. There are two reasons they're still there. One is they're still really, really good players. And two, the quality of what's come through to challenge them as top players hasn't been as good. And, you know, he was part of that age, the guys coming through, um, you know, in the early 90s who had grown up during that 80s snooker boom when there were millions and millions of kids 
taking up the game. So it was inevitable you were going to get some great players. It's a bit like in golf now. You see so many young players who were inspired to take up the game by Tiger Woods. That was the era we were having 25 years ago. What's come through to challenge them hasn't been as good. And, and that's why I think, as I was saying, I think Ronnie will still be a contender for the World Championship for another six, seven, eight years maybe. And you were saying you never know what sort of Ronnie's going to turn up. Of course, that's absolutely right. But you think the right Ronnie only has to turn up in two out of those six, seven or eight years for him to break the record. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if you put a gun to my head right now, which I hope you won't do, uh, I would say probably oh, well, will. But a few times. I will absolutely. But but here's the thing, though. Like you, you're right about his background, and and born at the right time. I think those guys, you know, um, in the mid seventies, so young in the eighties at the time of the boom. But of course, that applies to a lot of people, including ourselves, who didn't make it to the top of professional snooker. Yeah. You need you need something extra. Ronnie's often talked about as a natural talent, but I think that. And, and I think he does have gen, a, a very definite natural aptitude for it, definitely. But it, what you don't see is all the work he's put in. And he does work hard. He was at the Crucible yesterday, 9 a.m. practicing, you know. Um, and also, let's be honest, he's had advantages too. He had a table in his house when he was a kid, you know. His dad used to pay top amateurs and professionals to come and play him. He actually said before the championship, which I thought was a really interesting comment, he said that he felt like Prince William. He felt like he'd been groomed to be the king in a, in a way. You know, his whole young life was 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 uh, sur- uh, surrounded by, you know, playing in tournaments, improving, getting better at snooker. And in some way there, he maybe lost a sense of himself. We know he went off the rails when he was young. Um, he had a lot of sort of family issues as well. Um, but he has, he, he, what I admire about Ronnie, I think more than anything, is that he has survived. You know, we've seen him at, at his worst at times. We've seen him go off the rails at times. But here he is, 44 years age. I thought he looked great. He looks really well in himself. He looks happy. And he's won the world championship. And... Hats off to him, you know, he's an incredible figure in our sport. Every sport would want him. Yes, he Right, we're, we're starting recording again. I don't know at what point we were cut off, but we were cut off because Michael's internet went down. So, I mean, look, it's always a fiasco in some way, and there we are. It got cut, up, cut out. We're not going to pretend, you know, it didn't. It, it happened. I think I was saying about Ronnie O'Sullivan being... I guess I think the last word I used was exasperating before it all cut off, which actually is, it would, it sums up this podcast quite nicely. Um, but... Mm. But you can, I think you can put all that one side when you see him play. And what I would say about him, and, and how many people can say this, he lives his life entirely on his own terms. Um, you know, he's his own person. He does what he likes, and he can back it up with his talent, and he can back it up with his achievements. And I was just talking, actually, in the break there uh, between you getting the, the going down and you get back up again. I was talking to Hector Nunt, mm. um, leading snooker journalist, and he was saying, you know, some people there last night were a bit disappointed. It was a runaway, but. He said, watch for the newspapers tomorrow. And it's on the back pages of all the papers. There's, you know, it's it's big news. This is actually. Um, and so, yeah. So basically what I was saying was, you know, you, you even Ronnie's critics, and there are some people who, who don't take to him. You've got to just applaud the man. And I would have said that about whoever won it this year. There's no asterisk for me about this. This, this is a proper world championship and he has won it in a proper way. Yeah. And I, I mean, obviously it was finished so early and this was the first time in 23 years I wasn't at the Crucible for obvious reasons. So I was watching it all at home. And I then turned over to the news on RTE, which is basically the Irish equivalent of the BBC. And it was on the headlines you know, at the start of the bulletin. The last headline was, and Ronnie O'Sullivan wins World mm. Championship. I don't think that would have happened for any other player, obviously, with the exception of if an Irish player had won it. 
neither of us have ever bought into the nonsense that people talk about how the game is all about O'Sullivan and can't survive without him. And you think back to when he was beaten in the second round as far back as 2009 and people were saying, oh, that's it. Nobody's going to watch the second week now. Well, that's rubbish because we know there's a huge constituency of people who want to watch the big matches and the big tournaments, whoever's playing. Beyond that, though, there's a wider public who are casual snooker followers and maybe people who just take a passing interest. Ronnie O'Sullivan when he's winning and when he's making the headlines, gets those people talking about the game in a way that no other player, even Judd Trump, is capable of doing. And we all know that's a reality as well. And it does get huge publicity for the game. It does draw so many people to it. Who It's, it's like Jimmy White back in the day. I knew people who only watched snooker when Jimmy was playing. I think there are probably people now who only watch snooker when Ronnie's playing. As we say, there are a lot of others who watch the big matches, whatever's going on. But he does have that quality that no other player, as I say, even Trump, with all he's done over the last couple of years, uh, has brought to it. And I think it's great that even now, after all this time, 27 years after winning his first big title, he's still at this level. And as we were saying, I don't think there's any reason at all to suspect that he won't still be capable of competing at that level in another six or seven years. Well, you mentioned Judd Trump, and let's talk about that rivalry now, because it becomes very interesting. Trump had had the beating of O'Sullivan on the big occasions, last few times they played, most notably the Masters final uh, last season. It seems a long time ago now. Um, yeah. And was becoming kind of, you know, because he was winning so many tournaments and just taking up a lot of airtime, he was becoming the game's biggest star. But now the limelight has shifted again, and it's going to be fascinating, I think, when they next play, the next big occasion that they play, you know, who comes out on top there? What, how, what, how will Trump feel about this? You know, it's, I think that's really interesting now, that dynamic. Yeah, and wouldn't it be great to have a world final between them next year? You know, it, it's so often we talk about these dream finals, but you very rarely get them, actually. So uh, wouldn't that be fantastic if it was to happen? But they'll probably meet somewhere along the way in some big final. Obviously, for obvious reasons, we, we don't yet know exactly what form next season is going to take. But you have to think there'll be a final between them uh, somewhere along the way. And of course, you know, we thought when Trump took over the number one ranking quite early on in the season, that's it. He's going to hold on to it now for five or six years, probably unbroken. Uh, but now Sullivan's on his, on his heels again. He's got a big deficit to make up. Um, but, you know, it wouldn't take him long to do it if he's playing enough tournaments and is, you know, continuing to compete the way he did uh, in Sheffield, even when he wasn't uh, perhaps on his game. So, I mean, obviously Trump has many, many years ahead of him. As we said, O'Sullivan could have many as well. So that could be the defining rivalry. I mean, you think back of Selby and O'Sullivan, it's a few years ago now, really, that they had that ongoing rivalry, but it lasted quite a long time. And I think if if, uh, if a real rivalry can develop between Trump and O'Sullivan with more big finals between them, because we've had a few already in the last few years, then that's one that could uh, could run and run as well. Yeah, and all, but ultimately it comes down to the World Championship. I, I was That book we talked about, oh, must be a couple of months ago now, The Cruel Game, Gene Rafferty. Yeah. De details the 81-82 season where virtually every final seemed to be Steve Davis against Terry Griffiths. And there was a feeling that Te Terry was the only person who could stop Steve winning the World Championship that year. Of course, it was Tony Knowles and, and Alex Higgins won it. But they had a great rivalry. But the Crucible, Terry never beat him. And ultimately, and Ronnie's right in a way what he said about, you know, being considered a great. Ultimately, you are judged by really the, your performances in the World Championship. I, I promise never to mention the Triple Crown thing again. I'm going to mention it once more, OK? <laughs> Those are big tournaments, the Masters in the UK, but there's a much, much bigger gap between the World Championship and them and those tournaments and some of the others. The Masters is sure. a lot close. The Masters is a lot closer to say the Champion of Champions or the China Open even than it is to the World Championship. The World Championship is out on its own. The demands of a snooker player to win it 
are far in excess of anything else but, excuse me, that you have to go through as a player, mentally, physically, and just on the table. So to win six, six world championships, you know, that is a major achievement. And for Trump to be considered as one of the greats, I think he would agree with this. He would, needs to start winning more of them. Now, the age is on his side, but Ronnie O'Sullivan is not going anywhere. That's the problem. So he may have to beat him in, um, in next year's world championship to win another one. We'll see. It's a long way off. I want to ask you this, though. Okay, so we have had mm. the, dis- the discussion on this podcast who is the greatest of all time. And I went, went with Ronnie before I went with Ronnie before this year's World Championship and you were sticking with Stephen Hendry. Has the events of yesterday, or the last 17 days, affected that at all for you? Yeah, I mean, look, it has to a little bit, you know? That, that, that's the thing. The one thing you would say is, you know, Ronnie hasn't hit the heights in this championship at all. Uh, he hasn't produced anything on the table that he hasn't produced many times over the years and indeed in other world championships. Perhaps the best he ever played in a world championship was actually the first one he won back in 2001. Um, so from that point of view, it's, it's not like he stepped up in, in that sense. He's not done anything that he's not produced before, except maybe you might say he competed a bit better and showed more mental resilience that perhaps was one of the things where I felt Hendry had the edge over him. So I guess from that point of view, it takes him a bit closer. Look, let's be fair about it. If O'Sullivan does go on to become an eight times world champion, then the debate really, really is finished at that stage. And as we were saying, I think there's every chance he could. But my feeling has always been that there's very, very little to choose between them. As I said before, you know, I think a lot of people have forgotten how good Henry was. And when I put that to him last year, he said even he had forgotten how good he was in his day until he started watching some of his matches back. I think it's really, really close between them. And Hendry himself, and Sullivan would probably say this as well, as long as you're in the conversation, then um, that ultimately is, is, is what counts. And I think the conversation is limited to those two. And you were talking there, just picking up on something, you know, that you said about the World Championship being so far ahead of everything else, something I've always completely agreed with. And the quote, again, it's from Ronnie that he used all those years ago when he won it the first time, when he said, you know, in tennis, you've got your four Grand Slam events. In golf, you've got your four majors. But in snooker, there's just one the business tournament. And he really did look like it was all business for him yesterday, actually. And it was very similar to at least three of his previous world titles. He got a big lead. He knew he was in control of the match. And then he looked very businesslike in terms of finishing it off. And it's remarkable to think how comfortably he's won his world finals. I mean, the closest was the 18-14 against Higgins. And even that was probably a little more comfortable than that scoreline would indicate. I said to Mark Williams the night he won the championship two years ago, it looks like you don't win dull world finals, Mark, because all of his have been 18-16. But it's funny how Sullivan's won so many of them now and really only one and had a push two of those uh, could be described as in any way close. Absolutely. Well, of course, one thing that happened was Karen Wilson did not uh, fulfil the prophecy of Dave Tyndall, who, who, of course, he won... <laughs> He won, as, he won as Karen Wilson in his fantasy tournament, so that, that didn't come to uh, fruition. Just a couple more things before we finish. Um, I was interested that the BBC were putting it on BBC4 in the evenings, which seems to have been a, a massive success. Now, for those who don't, are not in the UK, BBC4 is it's a very niche channel. They show sort of arty documentaries and sort of Scandi drama, and it's sort of it's thought of, I guess, for... It's a certain audience, I guess. It's a, it's a kind of different yeah. audience to, to, a, to a general channel audience. So they're not really interested that much in ratings, but I'm told the ratings have been fantastic on, on BBC4. So I think that will continue. Um, I imagine that will continue for them. Sure. The other thing they did, and I, I, 
because I was working with Eurosport and, and if I wasn't commentating and I, I would normally watch it on Eurosport just to see what we were saying so I wasn't repeating it later on uh, but I saw a little bit of the BBC here and there and they've slightly changed the way they've done it they've brought in uh, Dave Farrow who listens to this podcast uh, who had a great world championship as, as a league commentator he did the maximum uh, boyhood dream for Dave he's a big snooker fan and also Rob Walker came in as a league commentator to work with some of the players that's a slightly different thing I'd be interested to see if they continue that because the BBC pioneered that way of broadcasting and then mm. changed it changed it to have all players but it's interesting as well that the time of year it was a very very hot period in the UK I mean really sweltering but it didn't seem to affect interest in the championship you know it was a big gamble I think to put it on um, for safety reasons and just you know to get a big sporting event on in, in, in this climate there was a lot of things that could have gone wrong and it would have been a high profile misfire if something had gone wrong but the fact is here we are the day after it went really well We've got a great champion. Lots of people are talking about snooker in the middle of summer, which has never happened before. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, and I've dished out criticism a lot uh, to, to, to the governing body over many years, and many times they've deserved it, frankly. But at the moment, I'll say this, they've got a fantastic team working at World Snooker Tour. Donna Beresford, who's the event manager, she is the, the woman who uh, took charge of the Championship League initially with Matchroom, made us all feel safe when we came back in June. No one knew what to expect there in Milton Keynes. And she played a blinder and she has led the way again with all the other people there. Off, Barry Hearn very often gets all the credit. And of course, he's in, he has inspired the work ethic and the sort of the, the, the ethos there. But there's a lot of people who do a lot of hard work. They've all been there for 17 days and they should all take a bow. They, I hope they got really drunk last night and enjoyed themselves because they've done a great job. Here we are. We got through it successfully. Yeah, but Barry, Barry's the leader. Barry. He's the ideas man. And you know, anyone who's worked with him will tell you this, and he'll tell you this. He comes up with the ideas and the grand vision, and then he leaves it to other people to get the details right. And that, as you say, is what happened in this case. And just to pick up on a few other things you said there, I mean, the BBC4 coverage, you know, p- people hark back to the old days and say, oh, you know, it was on morning, noon, and night back in the 80s or whatever. But actually, that isn't true at all. And this is the first time, I think, that pretty much all day, every day, it's been on one of the BBC channels as it were i know there have been times on the red button in the past but on live at 10 o'clock it's only really about seven years ago they started doing that again every year they're on for most of the morning they're on all afternoon and now they're on all evening as well so that's very much a step forward from that point of view um i'm, I'm gonna upgrade the championship a bit as we've talked about it i think i said seven and five eighths i'm gonna make it eight and a quarter let's say <laughs> out of ten for the championship so I'm upgrading it. I'm getting a bit more generous as we go along. And as for Dave Tindall, well, he's now got to go and play that championship every year because Kyron, obviously now we know the reason he lost the final, he fell victim to the curse of Dave Tindall's house because nobody has ever won that and then won the real championship in the same year. So, But uh, yeah, and again, going back to the organisation and everything, we await now to see what's going to happen next season. We have a calendar for the first half of the season. Where are those tournaments going to be? What form will they take? Um, where will they be shown? Will there be a crowd there? And then how's it going to play out in the second half of the season? The, th- the interesting thing is that the early part of the season is normally full of Chinese events. I think if you include the World Cup, there were maybe five events in China uh, by probably around October, November of last season. Now, obviously, none in the first half of this season. Then the, the problem is if you can't play them, which is very possible, in the second half of the 20 to 21 season, Well, what happens to that? Do they have to come up with more new tournaments in Britain to fill the gap, or do we just have a very sparse second half of the season? These are all interesting questions that will be answered in the uh, the months ahead. 
Yeah, and I guess the big question now is um, what will next year's World Championship look like? Will we have to play it like this? We've proven we can, but there, there is an issue down the line. You know, ticket revenue is actually quite a big money spinner. And sure. we can't go too long, actually, without getting money back in. The broadcast rights are big, but, you know, this couldn't go on for years without an audience, I don't think. I think you, we'd have to then cut... You know, the number of tournaments. I think Matt Schumann and Will Snooker at Tour are very well placed to ride this out and they've proven they can do it. And I think that that's great. We don't know is the answer. We don't know what sort of, uh, whether the audience will be back next year, when it will be played. We don't know if Ronnie O'Sullivan will win a seventh. But my word, he's in a great position now to really become definitively the greatest. I, I mean, I'm, he is for me anyway, but like you say, if he got to seven, if he got to eight, then who on earth is actually going to beat that in, in probably our living, in, in our mm. lifetimes, really? Seems very unlikely. Reason being, regardless of any chat around him, any opinions about him, he is a remarkable snooker player and he's proven it again this year at the Crucible. Now then, we probably should have talked about this off air, but, but in terms of the podcast, um, my intention is to take next week off. Um, so there won't be one next week. After that, it will be nice to resume it in some form. Uh, we'll maybe talk about that in the, in the real world. Um, mm-hmm. In the meantime, you can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, maybe with ideas for what we could talk about in this little gap before the tournaments come back. Um, in the meantime, though, that is the 2020 World Championship. And... Um, I guess all that is left to be said is, A, apologies for the interruption in uh, the podcast, but, hey, we're used to that by now. B, thank you, Michael, for your company. And C, well done, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Always a pleasure. That's all there is to be said. And before the connection goes again, we will stop. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.